Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to reintroduce to you today. Monique Attinger is a returning guest on our show. Be sure to check out her first appearance on our podcast on episode 318 of Boundless Body Radio, all about oxalate. Monique Attinger is a certified holistic nutritionist who is a world-renowned expert on the plant compound called oxalate. She is your partner in reaching your health goals through a focus on reducing your oxalate intake in combination with high-density nutrition and targeted nutritional supplements. Monique's clientele includes many with complex dietary challenges, including the overlap of individual food sensitivities or allergies with other therapeutic diets. Monique's coaching helps her clients who have been on, quote, eating healthy, eating extra healthy diets, unquote, some of which who have spent decades following careful eating plans, yet also find that they were not feeling well. Many chronic diseases have an inflammatory component, and oxalate can be an unrecognized driver of that inflammation, severely affecting people without them knowing the cause. You can find her on her website at www.loxcoach.com or on Twitter at loxcoach1. Monique Attinger, what an absolute pleasure it is to welcome you back to Balanced Body Radio. Well, thanks, Casey. Yeah, great to be here again. Um, any excuse to talk about oxalate? <laughs> <laughs> this topic is bananas, or maybe I should say it's banana leaves. This topic is so insane. I had such a great time talking with you before. We covered about like a quarter of the things we probably could have talked about. So I'm really excited to go down this path with you again today. I find this topic endlessly fascinating. And I want to go back to the introduction and let's time travel back maybe like 12 years. And let me tell you 12 years ago that you are going to be a world-renowned expert on a plant compound called oxalate does that sound like something you ever thought you were going to do (laughs) yeah no um you know honestly we we crashed into the rabbit hole called oxalate when my daughter was three as i mentioned last time and that was you know 2009 so you know 13 14 years ago Actually, it was 2008, 13, 14 years ago. And, um, you know, I remember sitting in my functional naturopath's office and him saying, I think your daughter, not me, your daughter has an oxalate problem. And I said, what's an oxalate? Like, I couldn't have started more from square one. So anybody who, who, feels like they're in that what's an oxalate place. That's where I started. Yeah. Um, But such a game changer, like such a game changer. I honestly was so unwell and just getting more and more unwell. And as, as you said in the intro, like if you're eating extra healthy and you're getting more and more unwell, then I think that's the hallmark of people who are probably consuming more oxalate than is ideal for them for sure and because it's pro-inflammatory because it triggers the inflammasome because it does all kinds of things that we have not been tracking like there's the odd piece of research which is why you know people like me or the kinds of people who I've learned from like Susan Owens who started the Triangle Oxalate Support Group she was one of the first experts in the field that I met when I um, started this diet, like 
thank God for her because she's one of these, I find these disparate pieces of research. I daisy chain the stuff between this piece and this piece and I end up connecting the dots, right? Um, You know, that learning that I did then was what got me into nutrition and then a whole new career because I kept thinking, okay, I'm a smart person. I was always a bit of a nutrition geek. I had done my best all the way along. And this sucker had been running under the surface, under the radar, and ha- you know was trying to take me down with it. And I knew nothing about it. And how many other people were doing the same thing, trying to do everything right, spinach in their smoothies, which makes me cringe now, nuts and gluten-free stuff as snacks, you know, also cringeworthy. Um, you know, all these things which are supposed to be extra healthy for us. And what if they're not? What if that has something to do with the epidemic levels of inflammatory disease? Like, uh, you know, and so that's why I got into this because it for me, it was mostly about my passion for this work I really believed in, but also getting the word out. So yeah, thanks for giving me another chance to get on my soapbox here. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm just, I'm hoping to just tee you up for all of your great material today. I, and, and I think that's one of the things that I took the most from our last conversation. You said it so well, and I've been sharing this with a lot of people. It's like, if you feel like you are doing all of the right things and yet something's off. Something doesn't quite feel right. That's probably a good sign that this might be the problem. And and I, I told you last time, like literally every morning, blender, beets. I used to peel beets, throw them in my blend tech with handfuls of spinach and almonds. Oh, I would put almond and almond butter in there. And like, yep. yeah, it was just, first of all, it was disgusting. I didn't really enjoy it. I felt really bloated yeah. and I, I just cringed to think what kinds of problems that would cause. And again, I'm in the health world. I'm doing everything my nutrition manual sitting right here says I'm supposed to be doing. And it's right. it might be the most harmful thing I could do. Crazy. Well, and that that is the insanity of it, right? Like I was doing everything to be as healthy as possible because I'd had my babies at 40 and 45 and I wanted to be a healthy mom for them. And I was just getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And I remember even my you know, I had a an endocrinologist I was seeing, and he was saying the same thing. You're doing everything right. I'm not sure why this isn't working. Just bad luck. Well, no, it wasn't. And, you know, not a not a personality flaw. Like I wasn't fatigued because I was lazy. I wasn't, you know, all kinds of things that we start to blame ourselves for. And it turns out. No, there was a physiological thing going on here. Like when I stop and think that I'm healthier like two weeks from my 62nd birthday than I've been since I was in my 30s, it's like, this is bizarre, right? Like I was up this morning at five, I walked the dog, stuff that I wouldn't have had the energy to do 14 years ago when we fell down the rabbit hole. So, um, Yeah, it's just, just such a big issue as we move to a harder and harder and harder focus on these really high oxalate foods. 
So if, if I'd been getting up in the morning, oh gosh, like you, I was eating stuff I didn't even really like because I thought it was good for me. Um, if I'd got up in the morning and instead of shoving handfuls of spinach into my smoothie, I had been putting, uh, you know, baby arugula or baby romaine or like almost any other green. Uh, all of a sudden, I would have been able to get whatever benefit there is to smoothies. Now, I'm not absolutely convinced that smoothies are that good for you now. So I mean, I'm, I've gone far <laughs> off the radar at this point, but it would certainly be, have been a lot better for me than what I was doing. Yeah. And, um, you know, almond butter and calling that a protein source. Well, A, it's way too much carbs for a protein source. And B, you know, almonds are one of the highest oxalate nuts out there. And so the amount of oxalate, when I stopped and thought about the amount of oxalate I had been taking in pretty regularly before I started uh, lowering it, you know, 1,500 to 2,000 milligrams a day would have been pretty average. And that's and massive, right? That is a massive it's, load. It's massive because the, okay, so if you're in the kidney stone world and they recommend a low oxalate diet, your textbook low oxalate diet should have you coming in around 50. So 2,000? <laughs> <laughs> it's way out there. And I had a client who started with me now, very analytical person, very methodical. She knew she was taking in over 3,300 milligrams of oxalate a day. Mercy. Yeah. So, but this, but this is well within the realm of something you can do without knowing it. If you're focused on paleo, if you're focused on nuts, if you're focused on these high oxalate greens, uh, if you're using things like TEF as a gluten-free alternative, like there's all kinds of things here you can just stumble into and, and not realize the amount of damage you might be doing. I mean, while I'm thinking of it, let me talk about the golden milk craze. It's not as big at the moment, I don't think, but for a while there, it was like all the rage, right? And people were making this hot drink and they were adding turmeric to it. And I knew people who were taking like a heaping teaspoon of turmeric or maybe even two teaspoons of turmeric. Each teaspoon of turmeric is um, going to give you something on the order of 50 milligrams of oxalate. I'm just checking to make sure here that I'm giving the right data. Because the thing is, is that we don't realize, we don't realize that there is good, something good in turmeric. It's called curcumin. You can actually get bulk powdered curcumin so that you don't have to be actually eating turmeric spice. But the spice itself, one teaspoon, just two grams of it, 48 milligrams of oxalate. Wow. If you put two of those in, you've got 100 milligrams of oxalate in that drink. That's just the turmeric. That doesn't count anything else you put in there. Wow. And so here you have this crazy situation where essentially you're like a hamster on a wheel. You're trying to do something that's anti-inflammatory, right? which is the curcumin that's in the turmeric but there's all this oxalate in it, which is pro-inflammatory. So then you need more curcumin, but it's in the turmeric. <laughs> That's pro So you're a hamster on a wheel, right? You're just driving yourself around in circles. And there's like too many places where we're doing this kind of thing um, because we're not, 
We're not paying attention to the anti-nutrients in the food. So we become obsessed with spinach because there's iron in there. But there's all these other things in there. And probably a large proportion of the iron is actually bound to oxalate. It's not actually going to help you. So it's it's just... Uh, it's a problem of where our focus is at the moment. And, and what I'm hoping to do is provide more context so that people can make better choices about what foods they're picking. Yeah. That's so interesting. Okay. In your opinion, since you've been at this for so long, how pervasive of a problem is this? Because I used to think this like would impact a few people in a few ways, but when we start to talk, start, start to talk, excuse me, about the symptoms of, of what can happen when you have too much oxalate, you're describing like everybody. You're describing 90% of people. So do you think that this is an isolated thing that really hammers a few people really hard and for most people they're doing okay with it? Or is this a problem that is completely pervasive through the population? See, this is a really tough question because I have a bias. So let me say right up front, I think if you're eating a really high oxalate diet, the risk is too high. Mm. Um, but will some people be able to survive it and do okay? Possibly. And so do I think it would be a larger percentage though than we're looking for? Yes. So what I'd say is we know now, for instance, that smoking is bad in the sense that it ups your risk for all kinds of conditions, right? Um, my one grandmother who was from Switzerland lived until she was 94. She smoked for 80 plus of those years, she never died with smoking related illness. She didn't have cancer. She didn't have COPD. She didn't have nothing. So everybody should be able to smoke, right? Of course not. We know that it raises the risk. Will there be outliers? There will always be outliers, right? I mean, at this point in my life, I probably eat a lot lower oxalate, even than what's recommended for a low oxalate diet, because I just feel better that way. Mm. So that would put me an outlier at the low end. And then there may be people who are outliers at the high end who can take in a lot more and do okay. And typically nature does over-engineer for something it knows about. So our bodies do produce some oxalate. So, you know, nature tends to over-engineer for a toxin that our body produces. And so... You know, I think our kidneys can probably handle 200, 300 milligrams of oxalate a day. Who knows, right? I don't know what the outside limit is, but but they can probably handle a lot more than the 15 to 30 that we make naturally, right? Mm -hmm. But can they handle that day in, day out, week in, week out? You know, where does things break down? Um you know, one of the things that does make me wonder a lot is the research on kidney stones shows that if people have metabolic syndrome, obesity, or diabetes, that they're at much higher risk for kidney stones. There's some kind of connection there between oxalate and that kind of issue. Well, we've got epidemic levels of overweight, metabolic syndrome, and diabetes in the population. Yeah. So could this be everybody? I'd say it's not outside the realm of possibility. Wow. And and I think when you look at long-term vegans, um, you start to see that as they get older, 
they may have chronic inflammatory conditions. Um, they may not realize it's oxalate related, but how much of our arthritis is oxalate related? There is research that links arthritis to oxalate, right? Um, how many plant-based um, women in particular have ended up with something like breast cancer? microcalcifications in the breast are linked to oxalate. Like, so there's so many things that we just haven't been looking for. So I don't know what's going to happen when we start to look, right? Um, so I'm not willing to say that nobody could eat a more plant-based, higher oxalate kind of approach and be okay. Um, but I would certainly want to dodge the bullet. It's yeah. like smoking, right? Um, I was a smoker when I was in my 20s. I hate to admit this. Um, <laughs> My parents had smoked, everybody had smoked, you know, I quit raw, you know, why? There was a risk involved. I didn't want that risk, right? So I think that over the next, who knows how long, but hopefully we become aware of the fact that there is this risk. And then you can choose, do I want to eat a higher oxalate diet? Are, am I willing to give up some of these things in order to reduce my risk? And maybe I am, right? And so uh, I'm also all about hoping that people get a choice here by understanding enough about it that they can say, well, you know, I really love my almond flour-based brownies. I'm going to keep eating them. <laughs> but at least you can't say you didn't know, right? right? I mean, I'm sort of saying, let's at least know what that risk is. Yeah, that's a great answer. I love that. I can tell you, if you told me not to eat spinach ever again because it was bad for me, I would I would be 1,000% compliant. <laughs> I'd be totally on board with that. No problem whatsoever. Um, awesome. Okay, so there are so many different symptoms that I want to talk to you about, but let's go back and tell people what oxalate even is. Because there's, in, in my mind, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, there's two kind of players here. There's a soluble form and an insoluble form. They both act in slightly different ways. And I think a lot of it has to do with what you mentioned earlier in the spinach, where there are minerals present in a plant that has the oxalate that, that might kind of chelate together and form that more like insoluble form of oxalate. Do I have that accurate? You do. You do. So if oxalate's occurring in a plant and you have a lot of like uh, spinach is actually high calcium too, which is interesting. So there's actually a fair bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's research. Um, you might love this. I'll see if I can get this to you. In 1939, they compared two dietary approaches with lab rats. One of them used turnip greens for uh, the calcium component. Turnip greens are low oxalate. One group used spinach for the calcium component. Spinach is very high oxalate. So in 1939, they had already identified some really nasty side effects from oxalate, including the fact that the lab animals who were fed spinach for their calcium component, when they reproduced, their young couldn't mineralize their bones properly. Wow. So we're, we're not talking um, insignificant things that it can do either. Um, but the challenge with that insoluble oxalate being present in a food is that we're not going to absorb that. That's a good news story because that's not necessarily going into your system. But the other thing that can be happening with that insoluble oxalate, 
One of the interesting things about spinach leaves is that it actually has crystals, microcrystals present in the leaves. Spinach um, is using oxalate to protect itself from insect predation. There's enough oxalate crystals in those leaves to break um, the structures in the insect's mouth. So it's a pretty heavy hitter in terms of what it's got in there. But when it's not soluble, we may not absorb it but we're going to drive inflammation in the gut with those microcrystals. Might as well have sandpaper running along through the inside of the gut. You know what? That's so funny. I heard of this. Somebody told me this yesterday. Somebody I'm working with on a carnivore diet. He said that on one diet that he was on before, he was instructed to eat diatomaceous earth. And I was like, what? That, That sounds terrible. That's like eating glass. And that's kind of the same way I think about oxalate. I think any of us can remember, like you put a piece of spinach in your mouth and chew it and it, it, that mouthfeel is it, it, gritty. Gritty. It's yeah. Gritty. Yeah. 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 Wow. wow. Yeah. So, so insoluble, you're less likely to absorb. Now, if the insoluble is present in, um, not crystal form, right? So you have individual molecules or something close to that of insoluble and you have a leaky gut, which unfortunately a lot of us these days have, you could be absorbing the insoluble as well. So I just want to say insoluble is not necessarily a get out of jail free card, Um, but there is research that was done where healthy subjects took like a calcium or a mineral supplement and then had soluble oxalate in their meal. And that oxalate would bind with those minerals and it helped them avoid absorbing as much of the oxalate. So it's, it's, it's not completely a get out of jail free card, but it is a helpful thing. So we also know that about kidney stones, by the way, if people are, have a higher calcium intake in their diet, um, that will help reduce how much oxalate's making it into the bloodstream. So it does actually reduce kidney stone uh, risk if you're getting calcium in your diet. So that's not necessarily calcium supplements or whatever, but it's probably more linked to this. The calcium is coming attached to the oxalate. So we're not absorbing it in the first place. Wow. Now that's insoluble. And then soluble is like ionic oxalate, which is a negative anion. And that we can absorb both by passive absorption. So the higher the concentration in the gut, the more likely it's going to move through. Um, And because it's passive absorption, you know, people say, well, if my gut's not leaky, I'll be fine. <laughs> this is chemistry. You, you can you can have the healthiest gut possible, but this is chemistry, right? Semi permeable layer, higher concentration on one side than the other. Bingo, bango, it's going to move across. And of course, there's enough time as it's traveling through the gut for that to potentially happen. So, um, so some people would argue that the soluble oxalate's more dangerous. Um, I'm a little bit of two minds. Like what's recommended generally by the Triangle Oxalate Support Group uh, and what I fall in line with is that 
count all the oxalate that's in your food. Mm. Just count all of it because none of it is completely without the capacity to be doing something. Now, once the soluble though gets into the body, so it's been absorbed from the gut, it's in the bloodstream. The challenge then is that it's all about where it gets trafficked into cells, when it meets up with a mineral, and you know this can determine what kinds of havoc it can play. So um, the soluble oxalate is still going to like to partner up with a mineral. If it meets that in your bloodstream, it's still moving downstream to your kidneys and maybe you're getting a kidney stone. Um, if it meets up in your joint fluid, you could have crystals in the joints. That could be the driver to your arthritis. If it's meeting up with minerals in breast tissue, you could have your microcalcifications in the breast, right? And it's being trafficked, uh, you know, in all kinds of ways and affected by different kinds of, um, like, substances that we produce in the body. So how oxalate gets traffic can be affected by cytokines, can be affected by neurotransmitters, and can be affected by hormones. Like that's an awfully big playing field. Wow. And so yeah, I I have seen symptoms from top of the head to the bottom of your feet. Like there the it's it's not like any tissue that's dealing with any of these substances is going to get a get out of jail free card either. And how many tissues in the body are not susceptible to cytokines, neurotransmitters, or hormones? Yeah, totally. <laughs> just about zero, right? Wow. Like at that point, we're just about zero. Wow. Yeah. That's so crazy. So, okay. So I wanted to ask you about a few specific symptoms and you already mentioned one. And this to me, it seems to be like the most obvious. If I've got the soluble form of oxalate in my body, it's looking for minerals, I think immediately to bones. And so bone damage, arthritis, all that stuff, that, that is a crystal clear link between the two. Really no question about that. Is that correct? Um, I think they're still developing research on this, but definitely there's been at least some that's looked at oxalate and arthritis. So that's, that's fairly, I think, I think the research that I read looks pretty good. Um, there probably more to learn, but I'd say that's, that's a reasonable thing for us to keep in mind. And in the research on oxalosis, so that's when you become toxic with oxalate. And really we, as a, as a overall, you know, health community that only gets looked at when the, when the kidneys are damaged and renal function is dropping. Or it gets looked at in the case of genetic hyperoxaluria, where they know your body's making the oxalate and it's making it at a much higher level than it should be. And the fix there is transplantation. And so wow. those are the places where they look at what oxalate's doing above and beyond the kidneys. And in fact, bone deposition is one. Uh, inside the arteries is another. Um, liver, kidneys, like you start to be able to tick off all kinds of tissues where oxalate can be getting deposited. And so we've only looked at that if the kidneys were failing 
What if that's happening long before the kidneys are failing? Yeah. Right. So that's the, it's these kinds of questions that I have. It's not that, um, it's not that we don't know anything about oxalate. It's that we're, we're not connecting the dots between certain kinds of conditions, um, things that we know that happen with oxalate toxicity. And what if the kidneys are still okay, but we're having problems and we, you know, we know the link with metabolic syndrome. We've got, we, we've got all these people who, um, you know, are struggling with overweight and stuff. Like we just have a perfect storm of things, which could be impacting how oxalate works. And of course, when people are overweight, they can have different kinds of hormonal issues. And as I as I said, I found this piece of research. It was one throwaway sentence, cytokines, hormones, neurotransmitters. And I went, uh-oh. Yikes. <laughs> Wow. I mean, just after the pandemic, I hope more people would make a connection to cytokines. We've heard a lot about cytokines through the COVID pandemic. I hope people would make that connection, which leads me to my next question. We mentioned, we talked about this a little bit offline last time that we talked. The lungs, this blew me away. Can you tell me a little bit about how oxalate um, can build up in the lungs and how that can affect lung tissue and all kinds of different respiratory issues? Well, they know that oxalate's associated with. COPD. And there's research that talks about oxalate and cystic fibrosis. And people who have cystic fibrosis have certain gene, you know, issues, right? But many of us could have one of a, of a, one copy even of multiple cystic fibrosis genes that you would have to have in order to be really sick. So is it possible that those of us who have one or less than the number of genetic um, copies of cystic fibrosis genes to be diagnosed could be more susceptible for some reason because of those genes? And what I'd say to you is I am by no means a genetic expert. Uh, when I get in too far into the genetics, it looks like alphabet soup to me. So I'm not going to claim to have you know, um, a really solid understanding here. But the SLC26A family of cell transporters, and those are related to cystic fibrosis, those cell transporters often have something to do with the movement and the trafficking of oxalate. And so, you know, there's, that's a genetic piece, which I don't think is getting looked at enough because we're saying, okay, unless you're homozygous on all these um, specific SLC26A cell transporters, then you're not, you're, you don't have cystic fibrosis, you wouldn't be diagnosed. But what if people have one, two, three, and they only have one copy and then they've got a good gene, but what if that's having an effect? Um, and in my son's case, like, I should say, myself, my daughter, and my son all had different expressions of oxalate. Wow. So we were a great example of how just because you all have an oxalate problem doesn't mean you all look the same. And my son had a lot of issues with his lungs. And he was on asthma puffers, and they were not really clear what was causing it. You know, maybe it was some allergies, seasonal allergies, but he would get he would get breathing difficulties in the middle of the winter and there was no seasonal allergies then. And so it was very intriguing to me. Uh, once I understood this piece about how 
you could have lung issues that could be related to to oxalate. I said to him, we're going to perform an experiment, poor kid. (laughs) He was like nine years old. And I said, for the summer, we're just going to not eat oxalate. He didn't want to do it while he was at school. He decided he liked the way he ate, but you know, he knew what I was like. So he was willing to put up with me for the summer. (laughs) And um, about four weeks into the summer, a time period when normally I would be feeding him antihistamines, like a food group, he didn't need any. And I was like, okay, gotcha. So we're starting to pull into September and I said, you know, we're not going to go back to eating the other way. So that we're gone. <laughs> wow. But, it, you know, it was, it was huge. So with my son, it was lungs and I lowered his oxalate and his lungs got better. And with my daughter, she was having rashes and she was having digestive issues and she was having something that looked a bit like vulvodynia. And again, lowered her oxalate and these things started to resolve. And with me, it was my thyroid and adrenals and insomnia and like just not the same set of things, although I had gut issues, but I had no lung issues, blah, 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 poor exercise resilience. It was like my body was struggling to make energy and took oxalate down and it started to get better. So I think that's the other thing. We're going to have to look at the level of health of the person. So at the time when I discovered I had an oxalate problem, I was clinically obese. I was struggling with some level of metabolic syndrome, but I was getting more and more exhausted. So it was really like exercise wasn't working. I didn't understand how I could hold so much weight and be eating the way I was. Like there was just sort of a lot of things going on. And as my thyroid came back online, as I got off oxalate, then my weight started to sort of naturally float downwards to some degree. Um, So there's, there's just so many places where I've seen this thing at work, but while I'm thinking of it, thyroid issues and oxalate, um, there's this great piece of research that I read where um, the researchers were taking, um, all the thyroid glands from people who had donated their bodies for, um, you know, for, for scientific purposes. And they took samples of all these thyroids from all different ages. And they realized by the end of the research, they could predict the age at which the person had died based on how much oxalate was in their thyroid. Wow. Wow. So it's bioaccumulating. So that like that's the other thing for me is that it's not the oxalate you eat today. It might not even be the oxalate you ate yesterday. But if you're doing this on, on a consistent basis, day after day after day after day, um there is indications that it bioaccumulates. And if we're like, how many people do you know that are on thyroid meds or have thyroid problems? Every 35, every 35 year old female that I know in my area. Yes. And so this is another thing which concerns me is that do we really think the human race was this fragile and incapable of dealing with its diet and its environment and it's whatever, like, 
something's not right when everybody's got it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. That was so well explained. I've got a neighbor who lives down the street. Um, she has suffered horrible skin issues in her life, like terrible eczema, rosacea, dermatitis, you name it. She's had it. And, um, she, she called me five or six weeks ago because she'd heard of carnivore and she started going carnivore and her skin started clearing up. And we just had an episode with Rob Stewart, who's a skin health expert. And he definitely pushes people down the animal based or, you know, kind of carnivore style diet to help them with their skin issues. And a question for him that I'll ask you is, do you think skin can be cleared up because of uh, adding in more of the animal products, which are arguably more healthy and don't have oxalate? Or is it the elimination of all these plant foods that do have these toxins in them? Or is, or could it be a combination of both? See, I would be on the side of combination of both. Cool. Um, I've got clients who have actually had like small crystals move out through their skin. So can skin be suffering? Yes. All the ways that we secrete things can be ways that we move oxalate. So it can be moving out through the urine, through the stool, because we've secreted it back into the gut. It can be moving out through um, mucous membrane layers. It can be moving out through the lungs. Again, we're secreting things out um, but we, we secrete things out through sweat too. So the skin can be struggling, um, as well. And I have seen people show me, you know, send me a little picture. Oh, look at this little crystal I got out. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, so, you know, for people who get cystic acne where, um, it's really aggressive and there's a lot of inflammation, I really wonder about that and oxalate. Yeah. Um, but for sure, what you do when you take the plants out, and maybe to some degree the plant seed oils as well, although I don't know as, as much about this. But once, once you do that, and hopefully you're getting more healthy, saturated fats through your meat consumption, then you have a chance to have better integrity for any epidermal cells, right? Who need that saturated fat for the cell membrane. Like, so there's, there's the, uh, you know, sufficient protein and bioavailable protein, not just any protein to be able to rebuild tissues. And there's the new things that we're learning about what's required to have epidermal cells be healthy. I don't know about, about other people, but I'm one of those people who went to a more carnivore diet and stopped burning. Me too. Yeah, me too. I can yeah. hang out. And I used to burn in strong moonlight. I used to tell people <laughs> I could burn in strong moonlight. And so I stopped burning. Like it takes hours for me to actually burn. Yeah. It's it's shocking, and it it even from the beginning of the season when I have no tan. I mean, now I actually have some tan. Yeah, you can't great. Tell, but I actually have some tan. <laughs> anyway, um, but it like I used to burn. It didn't matter when I was outside. I would burn in like half an hour oh, less. Easy. I I don't even use sunscreen anymore, which is to me absolutely shocking because I'm in my sixties, and that's when I when I realized, wow, look. And it was an accident the first time it happened. I was, I had gone out with my husband. We'd gone for a walk. Um, I had hit some uneven ground. I was wearing uh, these Dutch shoes called Klompen and they have, they have a wooden 
sole on them and a leather top. It's kind of a long story. Huh. But I just, I flipped one of my ankles and I walked for a little while on it. And then I went, yeah, no, this isn't going to work, sweetie. You're going to have to go get the car. And um, bless him. He did the, you know, the the 30 minute jog home because we'd been out <laughs> on a hike. And um, the only place to sit was out in the sun, unless I was going to like try and crawl my way into a place where there was more shade. And I went, okay, well, we're going to find out if this carnivore thing works or not. And yeah, I got home, no burn, no nothing. And I went, son of a gun. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) That is 1000% true with myself, with my wife, also with anybody we work with. And I'll, I'll point it out to people like, oh, your diet must be good because I can see the tops of your feet are getting tan. Most people would fry in that kind of area. And it's like, if you're eliminating those plant oils, like you talked about and getting the saturated fats, sun tolerance goes way up. And yes, please, 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 please don't use sunscreen unless you absolutely have to use shade, use long sleeves, get a hat, do anything other than apply chemicals that have been proven to be carcinogenic when they get heated up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And see, that's what I do. I am fair skinned and burning's not good for anybody, Right. but I use shade. Yep. So I'll say, okay, I'll spend this much of time out and then I'm going to go to the shade. Like, even if I'm at the beach, that's how I do it. Yep. I go in and out and in and out. And, um, that's really worked for me for the last few years. Oh, so, I love that. so really from a, from an oxalate standpoint, um, you know, from a dietary standpoint, I think that the skin can take some, uh, you know, beating up by our diet and, I absolutely think getting the right amount of animal protein, and that doesn't mean everybody has to be carnivore, but the right amount of animal protein and taking down any of the toxins that are going to cause inflammation and um, yeah, and damage to whatever tissues you're talking about, that, that's got to be a win for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. We did have a listener question on the note of skincare. What about skincare products, which are normally, you know, very much plant-based? Can those cause problems? Do those get absorbed directly into the body? Well, the skin is more a covering than a barrier. So if we can start with that idea. So if you spill something on your cloth-covered couch, it soaks in, right? It's a covering as opposed to a barrier. So one of the things I actually use to to my client's advantage is I'll suggest things like an Epsom salts bath, because you can actually absorb that through the skin, get some magnesium support, get some sulfate support, can be very good for you. But conversely, anything else you put on there, it's doing the same thing. So I've actually just recently started looking at carnivore cosmetics. I can't report anything definitive at this point because I'm still kind of poking around as to what I even want to buy. But I do think it does matter Mm. what you're using. And I'd say, you know, it's another way that you can be getting nutrients in your body. So think of it that way. If you can't eat your skincare, don't use it. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. I'm so grateful for my wife's sister who makes skincare products and she does make them out of beef tallow. And I don't know how else to describe it, but just to say my skin absolutely loves it. It just loves it. It takes it in super well, feels really good. Absolutely love that. 
Okay, one and other- that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I love that thought too. If you can't eat it, probably don't put it on your skin. I think that's wonderful advice. Um, one other physical symptom that you mentioned, and I know you suffered through that, I would love to hear you explain insomnia. How is insomnia linked to oxalate? Okay, so this is where our friendly cytokine known as histamine comes into play. And Histamine is actually something our body uses productively. So histamine is not a bad guy. Like people start to think of histamine as just this universal bad guy. It's not. So you release histamine every time you eat something because it's part of the digestion process. But when it comes to sleep, you actually have a histamine cycle in the brain. And I use this, I use this way of describing it every time. So about three or four in the morning at the time when your body produces a higher level of cortisol to wake you up your brain starts to produce histamine to wake you up then your histamine level in the brain has to stay up during the day for you to stay awake then it should drop down at night for you to sleep and then it should stay down so that's the appropriate sort of histamine cycle in the brain but if you're if your histamine in the brain's doing this then you're you're not going to be sleeping properly. And, and like any up and down gets registered. If it's going up, you're supposed to wake up. If it's dropping back, you're supposed to go to sleep. So you'll find people who eat a meal and then for a while they're okay. And then they just want to fall asleep. Right. That's not just a blood sugar phenomenon. That can be a histamine phenomenon. And and I think that's another one of those ones that's not well recognized outside perhaps the field of study where they're looking at mast cell activation and histamine intolerance disorders. And we're still learning a lot there too. So I, again, I can't claim any particular in-depth knowledge here, except that this cycle of what we're doing with histamine in the brain is really important. And if we can um, support a healthy cycle there, um, that can make all the difference in how well you sleep. And what I've noticed is, you know, I used to take melatonin and have no particular benefit from it. Uh, and I think it was because for me, the, the issue is really histamine. And somewhere around the time when I was um, playing around with some of these things, I discovered that what used to be called Benadryl was also called z Okay. And it's because they had come across the fact um, very early with Benadryl that it made people drowsy. And so if your sleep problem is really a histamine problem and you need histamine in the brain to drop, one of the issues with Benadryl is it penetrates the blood-brain barrier. And so they they marketed it as a sleep remedy. Wow. <laughs> Wow, that's so interesting. And so how was oxalate involved in that pathway with, with histamine? Well, because in a way we can't really think of it as separate, like because there's a bunch of sort of related, I'm going to say dominoes on the same playing field. So histamine can be affected by, its trafficking can be affected by oxalate. And, ah. Have I got that backwards? Oxalate's trafficking can be affected by histamine. Oh, I see. But I I think there's some indication that oxalate can affect how histamine functions too. And then there's salicylate and then there might be bicarbonate and there's a bunch of different things, which 
which all can be moved on the same kinds of cell transporters or are influenced by each other. So it's almost a bit of a three ring circus as opposed to something as simple as, you know, this happens and this happens and then, you know, we know why. So if you think of these things as different dominoes on this playing field, if you hit the domino from the right direction, maybe you can punch out that one domino. But if you hit the domino from another direction, maybe you're taking them all down at the same time. And I think it's kind of like that. Now, do we need to know more here? Oh my gosh, there is so much room for research. It's I would love to get, I I have some pet projects. I would love to get some researchers interested (laughs) in because I'm, I'm a nutritionist. I'm dealing with it from the pragmatic. How do I help this person? And sometimes I've got a hypothesis and I test it by saying, well, let's try this gentle supplement or let's try this change to your diet or whatever. And it turns out to work. Right. So I do have places where I go, boy, it would really help if we could test this hypothesis sure. in a really robust way and know more about it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's such a it's it's such an interesting topic because it's so nuanced. And offline today, when we were talking before we hit record on this conversation, I asked you, do you find it surprising that you still get surprised by some of this stuff? You're studying one plant compound primarily. I know you study lots of different ones, but this one plant compound where you've chosen to focus all your energy, do you still get blown away by the number of things that still surprise you to this day? Oh my gosh! I mean, there are days. Well, as I said to you earlier, I still need to do those those T-shirts that say "When in doubt, play Moxley." Because got to do them. I, I, it seems to turn up in so many places if you if you kind of follow the biochemistry. If you start looking at at what modulates certain kinds of cell transporters or what substrates are moved um, by the same kinds of cell transporters, what things influence how something else gets moved. It's just, uh, you know, honestly, it if you love puzzles, it's one of the best puzzles out there, right? So I, I sometimes say to people when I'm working with them on their diet, you know, this is a Sudoku or Sudoku or however yeah, they yeah. say that. <laughs> and I, I'm trying to get everything to add up. Right. Because I really almost feel like that's what I'm doing, because as the pragmatic, you know, feet in the trenches, trying to help people get their diet right. And and in some cases, use supplements in a way that's really going to support their metabolism and so on. I really want to be, you know, making sure that we're we're supporting their body in the right way. Right. And would love to know more about, you know, what's happening with this histamine thing. You know, what cytokines do what, like what brings oxalate out of the cells versus what puts it in, or is it, you know, is it indiscriminate? Like if it starts to affect how oxalate's trafficked, is it going to move into like, we don't know nothing. Right. So the more I learn um, from feet in the trenches, the more I think I would love to have some researchers get interested here because I can say, I'm seeing these kinds of patterns in my clients. Can you tell me with a well-designed study whether or not we can get some clarity on, on what's going on here? 
Right. Yeah. Well, and the nice thing about what you're doing in your work is we would love to have all those studies as well. But at the end of the day, you're you are in the trenches and you're getting practical, good results and case studies and all these people that are feeling better. And so we don't need to wait. We don't need to sit around and go, gosh, I wonder if I should stop blending up my spinach every morning or or eating spinach like Popeye from a can. He's got to be aging very poorly, by the way, not like you at all. I'm sure he's not doing so great right now. Um, but, but we already know, we know some of those things because you are doing that work, which we just so much appreciate. We talked about this last time. I think it's fair to talk about it again this time. We've named a lot of the major players, but I absolutely love what you've done with the dirty dozen. We, we'd sometimes talk about the dirty dozen and these are, you know, the, the 12 most kind of polluted fruits and vegetables that have lots of pesticides. You've done the same for oxalate. So can we go on that list and maybe highlight some of the biggest offenders and, and the, the very high oxalate foods and then I'm going to follow that question up with saying, is the solution for most people just to get those out as soon as possible, or do they need to kind of do it more gradually? Oh, gosh. Um, when it comes to reducing oxalate, because it's interplaying with so many other things in the body, um, it's really best to move it out slowly. So when it comes to what we know now versus what we knew at the time when I was reducing oxalate, we know that it's not a good idea to nosedive. (laughs) And um, part of the reason for that is really that it's got a second kick at the can on the way out. If we can think of this a little bit like heavy metal toxicity, you don't necessarily notice it going in. But once you're really sick with it, you are sure as heck going to notice it on the way out. And so with certain with certain um, processes, like even chelation for heavy metals, we know we have to go slowly because it's just as toxic on the way out as it was on the way in. But now you're more fragile. Same deal with oxalate. Right. So it's. It was toxic when it went in for storage in my body. But by the time I was trying to roll it out, I was 48 and wondering how long I was going to live. And so that's a whole different like health status for the organism, right? So what we really want to do, despite the fact that there is a proportion of people, again, outliers, who can nosedive their oxalate and they'll do fine. The more unwell you are, the more likely you should go slow in pulling things out. So I did okay, actually, at 48, like just trying to pull everything out as fast as I could. And at that point, people didn't realize what the, what the risk was. But I did have one really bad oxalate dumping experience. And at that point, my body had started to rev up some of the histamine stuff too. So the higher your stress level, the more likely that you're going to be more reactive, the more likely histamine issues are going to be there. And, um, you know, I, I actually ended up having to walk into ER to have somebody just monitor me because I was just not feeling confident. And so that's what you don't want. You don't want people so sick. They have to go to the ER. Mm. So, you know, if we reduce it slowly, then it moves out of the body more slowly and we're respecting the capacity of the organism to handle that at that time too. So 
by all means, if at this point in time you're doing something like spinach every day, but you've got lots of other oxalate in your in your your diet as well, pull one out so you can feel like you've successfully done something, right? But don't pull them all out at once. Oh my gosh! And the this is um this is one of those things that doesn't make a lot of sense to people, but it's kind of one of the easiest ways to take your oxalate down. Try to get most of your diet to be low oxalate and then have three or four foods maybe that are really high and have them intermittently. Mm. So let's say what I usually use for people is things like sweet potato because there's nutrients there um, that are more bioavailable than the kinds of things that are in spinach. and Yet it's still got a fair amount of oxalate punch to it, right? So maybe you start out, you've taken out most of the oxalate. Um, maybe every day you're having at least one serving of sweet potato, but every other day you're having two. You've still maybe come down from 500 or more and you're still doing good, but you're having some days where you spike up your oxalate. And then if we've got, like I've usually, I usually focus on certain foods. So I've got a short list of, maybe 10 foods, and then at different rankings, depending how high the oxalate diet you've been on. And I add those into people's diets and I give them a schedule. So you're going you're gonna to make this high oxalate smoothie and you're going to have sweet potato on this day. And then the next day you're going to have green beans and that's a lot less. And then you're going to have the high oxalate smoothie and the sweet potato again. And I'll actually give them a schedule of things to add in. Wow. And then we'll slowly fade those out. So we may have dropped them down to 300 milligrams of oxalate already, but but then we try to slow up as we're coming into that end game of getting to a fully low oxalate diet, which is not the end of the diet, by the way. I mean, you, I, I, I actually talk about sort of early game, mid game, late game when it comes to what you're doing with oxalate, early game, you know, supplements, slowly reducing oxalate. Uh, Epsom salts, baths, those are kinds of basics. Mid-game, your supplements can change. What it looks like when oxalate's being mobilized can change. Maybe we're doing more targeted things with amino acids, B vitamins. Like we could be doing something very different. End-game, I'm I'm an end-game person. I'm I'm done with oxalate. I don't even take a B complex anymore. Like my diet's doing the work that our diet should do if we were doing it right. And so, you know, you, you kind of have to be prepared for this movement through, and you also kind of have to be prepared for, I want to bring this thing down slowly. I want to respect my body's capacity and capabilities. The more fragile you are, the more careful we have to do this. And in the in the early phase of working with somebody, it's all about building them a toolkit so that when oxalate moves, because it will, that if it the symptoms are unmanageable, I have a way to respond and hopefully moderate them. That's really the game because it 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 is in that sense a lot like heavy metals. It's accumulated in your body, it's bad, and you have to have a way to respond to it so that you can handle the work that your body's gonna have to do while it's leaving. 
Yeah, that's so smart. I I got paid a lot of money back in the day at the gym I used to work at selling supplements. And by and large, I think most supplements are mostly snake oil, I would say. It's just my own personal opinion. But I always forget when you're in a really depleted state, like these people that you're describing as being more weak, more fragile, you might need to take supplements to help boost certain things. Whereas, yeah, yeah, if you're eating the proper diet, eventually the diet will be fine. But that's not that's not going to be the case if you didn't start out from an already metabolically healthy or sound place. So I, exactly. love, I love that approach. Well, and so if you came into, let's say a carnivore diet and you had been eating generally, you know, kind of not too high oxalate, pretty nutrient dense, and you were feeling pretty good and you wanted to drop all the oxalate out, or at least maybe if you had a couple heavy hitters left in there, I'd say, go to town. You got lots of capacity to handle this, right? But mostly by the time people find me, they've been through five or six diets. They've, you know, they've had constantly degrading health. They're kind of, they're the ones who have done everything right, but aren't getting anywhere. And then that person's relatively, and maybe fragile is not the right word, but their body's doing a ton of work that's not evident from the surface, yeah. right? And so we have to we have to respect what the capacity is that's left for any of this additional work that we're going to going to put on it, and we need to respect the whatever resilience they have left because you have to be able to handle your life at the same time. So unless they're already incapacitated and considered disabled or something, or they're already not working so that maybe they can do some things that someone else can't do. But certainly all of that has to be taken into account when you're talking about how you're going to handle the reduction of oxalate in their diet. Yeah. Interesting. I'm thinking like Lear Keith at the end of her 20 year journey into, <clears throat> excuse me, veganism and vegetarianism, completely, completely broken, terrible health. That is absolutely a case that you'd have to be much more careful than somebody who was in a much better state. Okay. Excellent. So let's go back the 12, uh, the dirty dozen, the dirty dozen, yeah. my favorite. I, I actually need to update these because I may want to, um, nominate some new, Ooh. um, dirties. <laughs> <laughs> Fancy. <laughs> <laughs> well, because, you know, it's the the trends and the pe things that people are interested in change too, right? So at one point, you know, lots of people were doing turmeric and that golden milk stuff, but that seems to have sort of settled down. So I, I might not make turmeric one of the dirty dozen. <laughs> it's still on my current list. Cool. So certainly by and large, my number one is almonds. Why? everybody eats almonds so and healthy so healthy for you so healthy and so important and oh look you can have baked goods from it and you know the amount of oxalate in half a cup of almond flour is about 400 milligrams like so if you're eating one of those big muffins you know what i'm talking about those big guys right where it's supposed to be like a whole meal for you holy lord like 500 600 and then it's got chocolate chunks in it and it's got well you know yeah i, I mean sometimes the one of those muffins could be a thousand milligrams of oxalate itself without too much difficulty wow. so almond flour is definitely at the top of my list for you know nasties um number two is spinach popeye and i will have to agree to disagree <laughs> um and like that one, again, 
you're just getting so much oxalate in such a small volume of food. So um, I've got noted here that a half cup of baby spinach, which is 25 grams, is over 150 milligrams of oxalate. Wow. So 25 grams. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's not worth it. So um, moving from uh, our friend spinach, dark chocolate. No one's going to love you for this one. <laughs> no, no. We just lost a lot of listeners. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Sorry. I'm sorry. No one's going to love me for this one. But the problem with dark chocolate is, again, this really concentrated oxalate source. And um, I actually work with clients who really love their chocolate. I like chocolate too. But what I do then is go to something like a milk chocolate or a lower percentage of um, cocoa in it and then get something like um, like a caramel that's covered in chocolate. You mm. get some chocolate flavor, but caramel coming from a dairy product, zero oxalate. Yeah, interesting. So, you know, there are ways to sort of work with some of this. I'm not telling all the foodies out there that you can never enjoy something again, but I am saying that, you know, something like chocolate needs to be treated with a little bit of care. Yeah. So my number four is turmeric just because golden milk was such a thing and 50 milligrams of oxalate per teaspoon and, you know, people are loving their curry and things like that. So I think this is probably turning up a lot more in their diet um as an oxalate source than a lot of people would understand because we think about spices the way we think about calories like they don't count yeah. but oh gosh with oxalate they count yep. um my number five on the list is beets and beet greens and you know the tough thing with beets is that there's just nothing i found that's really a good substitute for them but it you know if you wanted to have a tiny little taste of a pickled beet, the thing here is that when it sits in that pickling juice, it loses its soluble oxalate. So if you want to treat it as a small condiment size portion, you might be able to have a little bit. But when it comes to things like juicing, if you want that red, purple kind of color, cabbage go to the red purple cabbage mm. right it's just this is not this one's not worth it mm. oh and not everybody eats this but it's like the highest oxalate thing we still call food and that's rhubarb oh yeah yep i used to love um you know stewed rhubarb when i was a kid um half cup of raw diced rhubarb which is going to cook down when you stew it is 750 milligrams wow. of oxalate. Oh my goodness. So it's like, yeah, 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 wow. yeah. Don't do it. Don't do it. Um, and so, you know, moving along to the rest of the 12, um, for number seven, I had teff. And teff is one of the gluten alternative grains. And so it's not being used by everybody, but for those who are in the gluten-free world, this can be a significant source of oxalate in their diet as well. And so um, a half cup of the flour, so if it's being used to make like a wrap or things like that, which are very popular, would be 130 to 150 milligrams. So 
not as bad as rhubarb or spinach or any of these guys. But if you're doing this, if you're using TEF in, uh, as a regular part of your diet, yeah, this is going to add up. Um, my dad's Swiss. I'm going to throw the Swiss under the bus because Swiss chard is bad. So, um, yeah, my family loves Swiss chard too. So it did pain me to add this to the list. But um, the problem here is that um, the worst one is really the green chard. So a half cup of loosely packed, so that's only about a half an ounce, is 170 milligrams of oxalate. So if you're shoving that into smoothies, again, you're having a bit of an issue. Um, and it it doesn't matter which color you get, the red, the green, just yeah, uh, the the red is even higher in oxalate than the green. So a half cup is going to give you over 200 milligrams of oxalate. So it, this is one of those places where I would then say, if you like a really crunchy green like that, go to a Dino or Lacinato kale, which is a similar kind of shaped leaf. It has those scalloped edges instead of the curly sort of jagged edges. And um you know, the same amount of, of, of Dino kale will give you about four milligrams of oxalate. So it's nothing, right. Um, sweet potato is one of the guys that I've got on the dirty dozen. It is one that I use if people are reducing their oxalate, but you know, truth of the matter is a hot, just a half cup of baked and mashed purple sweet potato. So more people are using the orange than the purple, but the purple one is over 250 milligrams of oxalate. Wow. And the orange one is still going to get you 150 or so. So, you know, definitely not your friend. And you said half a cup? Mm-hmm. In the history of sweet potatoes, nobody has ever eaten half a cup of sweet potatoes. Everybody Well, see, that's the other those. problem, right? Totally. Wow. <laughs> now, um, the other darling of the world is our Mexican food, and black beans are not your friends. So I often will make Mexican style food here, but I will use something else. So instead of a black bean, I might use a black eyed pea. So a black bean, um, half a cup is seven, about 70 milligrams of oxalate. And again, who eats half a cup, right? right? So we tend to use, um, uh, black eyed peas instead and the same half cup is going to be like under five milligrams oh, wow. so again you just you, you can't lose with some smart substitution you can eat the same kind of food but you're just going to do some smart substitution um number 11 cinnamon mm. and people love cinnamon because of the healthy blood sugar you know blah 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 yeah, every teaspoon of cinnamon can contain up to 40 milligrams of oxalate. Wow. And we kind of talked about this last time, but we're coming up on pumpkin spice latte season around here. So that's definitely going to be on the rise for sure. Exactly, exactly. And so um, actually, I just um, got arranged with a a spice drop manufacturer for a discount code. Maybe we can include it for your viewers, but I use Holy Lama spice drops Mm. and these things are lovely. And we tested 
turmeric spice drops through the triangle oxalates group. We tested the cinnamon spice drop and we tested another heavy hitter, which is cumin. Again, implicated with our Mexican food. And all of them tested zero oxalate per drop. And these spice drops have a lovely fresh taste. So it's more like the fresh spice than the dried spice. I really like them. Um, And so when it comes to cinnamon, I either replace with a dry extract or replace with these spice drops. And you can have your pumpkin spice. Just don't buy the dried ground spice. That stuff's just too, too much oxalate. Gotcha. Cool. Wow. What a great alternative, at least. It's nice. It's nice to have an alternative. Like I've really been on um, a mission to find how do we get the flavor, the taste, the texture? How do we eat in a way that we enjoy and which is healthy and which leaves the oxalate behind? So um, I do a lot of that work and post it on my Patreon group where people can subscribe. I actually post menu plans, short menu plans, one or two days worth of food, but to show you what's possible. Like when people come to eat at my house now, you know, my mom's brought some of her elderly friends. Her elderly friends are not diet gurus by any stretch (laughs) of the imagination, right? And my mom's 83. So, you know, it's it's not like we're looking at people who have wide ranging exotic tastes, but they can sit down to a meal here and never know that it's because we're on a special diet. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. And that, I think that's the idea. I mean, might push their boundaries a little bit. Um, a woman who I call aunt Joan, who's a good friend of my mom's came once and had a pizza that was made with a cauliflower crust and the pizza sauce was made with butternut squash puree and um, a measured amount of tomato paste and these holy llama spice drops. And she was like, oh, this is really good. What's this made from? She knew it wasn't like regular pizza because she couldn't pick it up. The crust wasn't sturdy enough. Yeah. yeah. But certainly had no problem eating it. So <laughs> Sounds delicious. Yeah. It's one of my favorites. Maybe we should make it available. Sounds great. (laughs) Um, And the last one on the Dirty Dozen, because they're so popular, are russet potatoes. Mm, Gotcha. So potatoes in general are kind of high oxalate, but the russets, one baked russet potato, and who doesn't love like baked potato skins or things like that? Right. One baked russet potato can be 120 milligrams of oxalate. Wow. Wow. And so, you know, This is really the challenge is that the dirty dozen is kind of, you know, snaked through all the foods that we eat. And we've slowly kind of tended in a direction to where our average intake is higher. So seasonality would have protected us to some degree. Like when I was a kid, nobody ate spinach in the wintertime. It was in your garden. And and when I did eat it, it was boiled. So whatever soluble oxalate was gone, right? So there's there's things that we did in traditional processing of foods that now we think we're smarter than those people, yeah. right? So we went to raw spinach and lots of it. We went to raw beets and lots of it. So traditional processing methods we've abandoned. We've doubled down on some of these really high oxalate foods because we're looking at their their nutrients without looking at their anti-nutrients. We're eating far more of this stuff 
because it can be shipped to us 365 days a year. So when I was a kid, nobody got fresh beets during certain parts of the year. Nobody ate fresh nuts except around Christmas time because that's when the harvest came in. Wow. So things like this that we, we've we lost in a very short time period. And then on top of that, <clears throat> if you look at things like antibiotics, the kinds of uh, gut bacteria that help to break down oxalate, the big gun there is called oxalobacter formigenes. And Every, yes, I've worked- Everybody on- knows that. Everybody knows that. I've worked hard to be able to pronounce that well. Great job. Anyway, um, and like it's very fragile in the face of antibiotics. And how many people in North America do you know that have never taken antibiotics ever? Nobody. Right? Nobody. And so once we've killed it off, we don't really know how or if even it recolonizes. And so if we're losing some of our bodies support mechanisms that would have helped us deal with that. If our metabolism is compromised because we are metabolically unwell at one level or another, and then we are doubling and tripling and quadrupling down on really high oxalate diets, we've got a perfect storm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So I do have one last listener question, very much related to what you were talking about as far as the processing of food, which we talked about this last time too. Like the Dr. Bill Schindler says it so well in his book, Eat Like a Human. You have to really respect plants. Plants should scare the hell out of you. That's not to say don't eat them. It's that we have this entitled, you know, kind of kind of way of thinking about things and think that we can just eat them and nothing will ever happen. So so around that note of processing foods, what about fermented foods or, or fermented foods generally safer? I know you mentioned pickling as a way that can sometimes help. It is the fermentation of foods like things like sauerkraut, kimchi, probably not super high to begin with, but does fermenting also help? The, the, the research on this is really ambiguous. So the problem for me is that where the data is not clear, how much risk do I want to accept? Good point. Right? Um, so something like kimchi can be low oxalate if you're really focusing mostly on cabbage, but if you start adding things to it, um, same thing with sauerkraut. So if you've got traditionally made sauerkraut and it's cabbage and it's salt, there is nothing offensive there, but you start adding caraway seeds and yeah, yeah, yeah. then caraway seeds are actually pretty high oxalate. So you don't want to do that. So, um, a, the data on comparing the whole food to the fermented food and looking for changes in oxalate is not in any way definitive. There are other places where I can talk to you about patterns. I'll give you an example. If you take any nut and press the oil out of it, that could be the highest oxalate nuts out there. It could be almonds. The oil is zero oxalate. Because all the oxalate somehow gets left behind in the structure. So for people who enjoy some of these or want some benefits from them for one reason or another, um, you know, we could work that into a salad dressing, right? And, And you could benefit from it and there's no oxalate being added to your diet. So that's a fabulous pattern where I could walk into a store see a nut that I've never used before. And maybe I'm interested in the oil to try it for flavor or baking or whatever. And I'm, I'm going to be safe doing that. Wow. Wow. 
But with some of these other things, we don't have that kind of really consistent, solid pattern. And that's where, um, you know, then I'm like, well, I'm going to vote for caution here. If all the oxalate um, in a food is only from low oxalate ingredients coming in, you're probably okay. And if it's fermented in a way where there is a canning juice, a liquid, a something, soluble oxalate will have a chance to go into that liquid. But then people have to remember, don't consume the liquid. That's right. Right. Just eat the food because what you're after is the, you know, the benefits of it. But you let's leave some of the oxalate go by the wayside. Right. So that's actually one of the things they can do with, you know, eating certain foods where there's enough soluble oxalate in it that if you boil it you actually get rid of that and are able to consume it then um something like carrots um carrots can add up if you eat a lot of them um but peeled and boiled they become pretty much a low to medium oxalate food we eat them i put them in soup i will boil them first get rid of their extra oxalate then i throw them in the soup Mm. because we're going to eat the broth of the soup so there are some things you can do to give yourself some advantages. And I wish I had more definitive information on fermentation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's so interesting. And like I said, the the reason I love your work is because you are doing the work and seeing the results. And again, what I would consider like really practical ways or case studies with the people you work with, you do offer so many different resources for people, which I absolutely love. I love your blog. I love the stuff you post on Twitter. You're an absolute bright spot on Twitter, which I, I don't love <laughs> very much, but I, I love seeing your content and you have been so awesome and generous with your time today. Tell people where they can go to find you to connect with you and your work. They can find me on Instagram as at Loox Coach. They can find me on Facebook. I do have a Loox Coach page, but my account is Monique Attinger dash nutritionist. Um, and I don't love all the social media either. So I may be intermittent on any of these particular things, but the reason they might have more luck with me on Facebook is if they join the Triangle Oxalates group on Facebook, because I'm one of the senior admins there. And so I still um, volunteer some of my time to, to just help get the word out. You can find me on Twitter as LoaxCoach1. Um, I years ago set up a Loox coach account and then didn't have the email and the password anymore. <laughs> so I'm competing with myself on Twitter. Funny. Funny. Um, and uh, I do have my Patreon group. Um, they can subscribe. They can come and go as they please. I try to make it as self-serve as possible. And there I'm posting articles, I'm posting recipe hacks, pictures of meals, if they're curious, they'll see those on Instagram as well. Um, But, you know, sort of at the entry level subscription, it's just to give them some ideas and kind of help them figure out their own diet. Um, If they subscribe at my level two, they get access to menu plans, full, you know, two day, three day menu plans with all the recipes. So that gives people a real chance to, to see what's possible. And honestly, those menu plans, I put notes as to why I've done things the way I've done things. I put options in the recipes. 
I'm really assuming this is an education in itself to do that. And then at my level three, I have more research-oriented articles. I will post sessions from my group coaching so that people can kind of get the benefits of group coaching, but without having to get on one of those. Um, and I also post uh, other kinds of videos like me cooking in the kitchen and stuff so that people nice. can kind of figure out it's not it's not that bad. You can You can really do this. It's really okay. So I have all those ways that you can find me. Um, I don't think I'm missing anything. I don't think so. I mean, you've got YouTube, which is the Wizard of Low Ox, which I really enjoy those conversations. I love that you told us about that last time. Yeah, I love those. That's the new one. And I really am enjoying that. There's four of us. We're all people who have been involved in the Oxlate world for 14, 15 years or more. Um, Susan Owens, who founded the original support group, is part of the Wizards of Ox. And I love that the name was Sassy. And I really like that people get a chance to hear different approaches, different ideas. Um, it's, so we're, we're really a panel of either three or four people every week. And... You know, it's a it's a great no cost way to get started, and that is Wizards of Ox on YouTube, and um, we we have a dash low oxalate experts just in case Wizards of Ox isn't getting you where you want to be. But yeah, I do love that name. It's a lot of fun. It's a great name. It's funny that you mentioned that because when I typed in Wizards of Ox, it sends me a bunch of Wizard of Oz videos that I have to like scroll past to get to yours. So funny. Yeah. So uh, if you put in Wizards of Ox, low oxalate experts, you'll you'll definitely perfect. get our channel. Oh, perfect. That's awesome. Monique Attinger, thank you so very much for all of your work. And thank you for taking more time to be on our show today. We really appreciate you and your work. Thank you. It's been great again, Casey. It's so yours to... Here's to people being as healthy as they can be and being able to make good choices about their food. Yeah, cheers to that. And and, and doing it in a way that would be against everything that everybody else is saying about trying to be healthy, which is why your work is so good and is so needed and more people need to hear it. So again, thank you so very much. I'm sure this isn't going to be our last conversation, but thank you so very much for coming on our show again and educating us again. We really appreciate you. Oh, you're welcome. Nice to be here. Awesome. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. As always, thank you so very much for listening to and supporting Boundless Body Radio. It has been such a joy to go on this journey now that it's been two years of doing these episodes and all the amazing conversations that we've had with thought leaders and to be able to share this message around the world with literally hundreds of thousands of people has been so amazing. If you haven't already, please go over to Apple, leave us a rating and review as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and touch more lives of people out there. I am so excited to announce that we are launching the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. This is something that I have been working really hard at for a very long time and something I am very proud of. Now that we have done over 300 episodes, our content can be a little bit overwhelming if you really want to learn about one particular topic and really zero in on that topic. So that is exactly what I have done. I have gone through all of our episodes, taken the very best clips all about one particular topic and put them into long form 
very informative and concise episodes called the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. That can be found on our brand new Patreon page, which I'm really excited to announce as we have all kinds of different offers there and different tiers. We're including early releases of our show, Boundless Body Radio. We typically keep about 15 to 20 episodes scheduled at any given time. So we have options there where you can have early access to those. We are also offering group and one-on-one coaching and also access to these premium podcast episodes, the Balanced Body Radio Premium Podcast. We have three that are launching right now, and I will be making a new one every other week. And we believe that we are providing these for a very, very high value. So please check us out on Patreon. Check the link in the notes to be able to get there. And thank you, as always, for listening to Boundless Body Radio.